Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I am Matt Levin, data journalist with Cal Matters. And I'm Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today on Gimme Shelter, rent control dies in the Capitol. Is that too sensational? No, that was it was an ignominious death. (laughs) It just Throwing out the GRE words early on the podcast, <laughs> trying to intimidate our audience. <laughs> it's 2018, man. You know, some people are starting to think about that right now. So here you go. <laughs> um, so we will be talking about both Liam and I were in attendance for the Costa Hawkins repeal hearing um, that happened on Thursday of last week. We're going to take you through the hearing, what actually went down some of the politics behind why this thing failed. Um, And then we have a, I think, perfect interview for the week. Yes, we are with uh, Assembly Housing Committee Chairman uh, David Chu of San Francisco. Um, And he uh, ran the meeting and working on this issue for a while. And we're looking forward to hearing his thoughts. We can ask him how fun it is to bang a gavel. Um, and actually, like, have it mean something. Because he was banging his gavel a lot during the hearing. Stay tuned for a half an hour to to get the answer to that question. We're hard-hitting, man. (laughs) Um, uh, Before we we start, just a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, When Liam and I started this, we had absolutely no expectations about this podcast. And it has been very gratifying for both of us to realize that, oh my God, there are people that actually listen to this and value this. And at the start of a new year, we just wanted to extend our thanks for sticking with us. We're going to keep with this once every two weeks schedule. Uh, yeah, Liam, what, what would you like to add? Yeah, it's just, it's been great. You know, uh, please keep rating us on, on iTunes. We've yes. had a, a really remarkable uh, turnout there and a remarkable turnout of listeners. We had one podcast uh, eclipse the thousand listener mark uh, recently. I and think so we're going to have that's, two by the time this airs, actually. That's fantastic. And so thank you so much for, for listening. And please make sure to, to tweet at us or email us if you have ideas for how we can do this better. So this entire podcast is going to be about the rent control hearing. Uh, But very briefly, there is other very important housing legislation to watch in the Capitol. And Liam is going to run down some of the bills that you should be following if you care about housing in California. So uh, January of every year um, is the beginning where lawmakers introduce bills that they're going to debate for the entire year. Um, And so that's where we're seeing a spate of new legislation on every topic. And there are three uh, housing bills in particular I just want to call out as things that we'll talk about and and, and you folks should watch um, as the year goes on. Uh, One is um, legislation introduced by Senator Scott Wiener of San Francisco. This is SB 827. And what it would do is allow for potentially a huge increase in new housing development within a half mile of transit lines. We're talking about uh, Metro in L.A., BART in San Francisco, um, and it essentially eliminates um, zoning, local zoning rules in in, in those areas. There are some height limits, um, sort of a minimum height limit of, of eight stories or four to eight stories, depending on where a particular project would be located also eliminates um, some parking minimums. And, and, and as a result, um, it would, you know, essentially, well, it would ban uh, single family zoning near, near transit. This is, this is kind of a big, big deal. We will likely be devoting probably 
a good chunk of further podcasts to SB 827, depending on what happens in, in the Capitol. Let's move on to the other two bills that you've isolated, Liam. Yeah, so the Wieners bill got a lot of uh, attention, but there are a couple of lower key ones that I think are worth keeping track of. Um, the first is Senate Bill 831 from Senator Bob Wykowski, who's an, also a Bay Area legislator. Um, and a couple of years ago, he introduced legislation, and so did Assemblyman uh, Richard Bloom of Santa Monica, to make it easier to build, um, and there's no good word for this. Like, I hate, like, all the language that's used for this. But, like, granny flats or, like, like backyard cottages or accessory dwelling backyard units, which is probably cottages. the— yeah, like, uh, there's no good word, man. Like, you need to think of it. Maybe we can crowdsource that. I think of a better word than granny flat or the worst, again, is ADU, which is just just terrible. And a couple of years ago, legislation from Wykowski and Bloom sort of made it easier uh, for these buildings to be built um, in cities across the state. Um, and so Wykowski is now back, uh, SB831, with a bill that's much more aggressive, um, eliminates local fees on granny flats, like water connection fees and things like that. Uh, creates a temporary amnesty program for some of these unpermitted ones, people just kind of building these things in their backyards without uh, asking for permission. Uh, and that's a big deal, I know, in L.A. Uh, and so uh, we'll see sort of uh, how far this one this one makes it to. Uh, and finally, uh, tell us about AB 1759 from Kevin a- McCarty from the Sacramento area. Yeah, so this is an assemblyman from uh, Sacramento who hasn't um, been too active in the housing space before. But he has an idea that sort of has been touted a lot um, by a number of folks to sort of deal with some of the financial incentives that make it less likely for cities to to approve housing. And so he's using um, uh, his bill um, would connect uh, or tie uh, housing production uh, with respect to this, this, the housing production goals the state sets out and says, you know, if cities meet a certain don't meet a certain percentage of, of production, um, housing production, then they would lose some transportation funding. Um, and so this is a, an effort to um, try to deal with the fact that as it stands and under California tax policy, it's um, financially uh, uh, not a good idea to approve housing with uh, as compared particularly to hotel development or other commercial development. All right. Any 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 other bills? I mean, there are now, other bills, but let's let's get let's let's head into our avocado of the week. I would say the rent control hearing was avocado. There were many avocado worthy moments. I think foremost, the one that jumped uh, immediately out at me and Liam uh, was a moment actually from a legislator. Um, Assemblymember Jim Wood from the North Bay area, so just north of Santa Rosa, uh, stretching all the way up to Humboldt. And we actually have some tape here. Um, thank you, Mr. Bloom, for bringing this bill forward. And I do have a question. I, I am new to this committee, so um, I'm not familiar with the Ellis Act. So um, is that a state act, a federal act? And why is that not under consideration for potential reform as well? So... We have a new member of the housing committee, uh, which is a very important body on housing issues um, in the legislature. (laughs) I would say Uh, so. You would say so. Not knowing about one of the most important um, laws with respect to housing in the state, which is the Ellis Act. And the Ellis Act um, allows landlords to eject tenants from rent control departments if they're tearing down their building or getting out of the rental business. And so this is a big, big deal because a lot 
of uh, you know activists um, feel like this law has fueled um, gentrification and chondro conversions and displacement uh, up and down the state, particularly in LA and the Bay Area. Um, and you know, they're, they're, it's a highly charged issue, almost as charged as the Costa Hawkins rent control law. Um, and you know, you'd think someone on the housing committee would would know about it. Yes, or at the very least, not advertise to the entire hearing that they don't, um, without being too harsh on on Wood. I, I mean, the Ellis Act. If you if you if you had a word cloud of uh, frequently said things within San Francisco, like I don't know, Muni, Jimmy Garoppolo. The Ellis Act is like somewhere in the word cloud. Like this is especially in San Francisco, you don't have to be super super wonky to be paying attention to the Ellis Act. Would you agree with that? Yes. Um, and so yeah, for the moment he said it, me and you looked at each other. Um, like with a, with an exchange of like, wow, I can't believe that just happened. Um, and then you could hear, I don't know if it's, if it's evident on the tape, but you could hear some audible reaction from the crowd, like some kind of muted gasping. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Just one of the many highlights of a jam packed, uh, Casa Hawkins hearing. So before we d dive into that, Matt, why don't you take us through like what Costa Hawkins is and what it does? Sure. So very quickly, Costa Hawkins is a piece of 1995 state legislation that barely squeaked by with one vote in the legislature that shapes rent control policy across the state. And it's important because of what it says cities you can't do. Um, and I'm going to rattle off kind of the four main things it says cities you can't do. One, you cannot put rent control on units built after 1995, no matter what the unit is. Two, it freezes in place essentially the uh, local rent control ordinance whenever it was originally enacted. So what that means is that in places like San Francisco and L.A., where the original rent control ordinance went into effect in 1980 or 1979. 78 uh, in L.A. Sorry, 78 in L.A. I think it's 79 yeah. in San Francisco. Uh, they can't impose rent control on units built after that date. Three, uh, single-family homes. So it also bans rent control in California on single-family homes, which is increasingly a popular living situation for families, especially post-recession. There's been a lot more single-family home rentals. And then four... Vacancy decontrol, man. Vacancy decontrol. Oh, yeah. my God. Um, which is arguably the most one of the more important ones, which says um, landlords have the right once a tenant uh, moves away um, to bump up it, the rent to market rates. So it, the rent, rent control is not attached to the unit the way it used to be. It is attached to the tenant. And this is obviously a huge incentive for landlords for tenants who have been there, rent control tenants who have been there, you know, 10, 15, 20 years to get them out because the moment that they leave, we can jack up the rents to what the market will bear. How was right. my timing on that? Well, it was long, but I think it was comprehensive. Ah. So, so, 
<laughs> so, so that's a, but that's a good that's a good uh, way to segue into what was ha- what happened last week, which yeah. is uh, there was a hearing on a bill introduced by Assemblyman Richard Bloom, uh, uh, who we mentioned earlier in the podcast uh, from Santa Monica, uh, and it was one line, and it was repeal Costa Hawkins, right? And so all those things <laughs> that Matt said um, would be out the window, out the window, which would then free up uh, local governments to be able to implement rent control policies of their own choosing. And a very important distinction in that is that this law would not mandate rent control across the state. It would allow localities to impose it should they want to. If the law went away, correct? Yes, if the, exactly. If the repeal went through. I think many of our listeners actually were in attendance, uh, but some of you wouldn't. Some of you did not want to get on a bus at 4.30 in the morning to come from San Jose to, to stand in line to give public comment. Uh, but or Liam, a plane from LAX would also be bad. Yeah. Yes, or from yeah. San Diego. People came from all over the place for this hearing. That's right. So we thought we'd take you through the day um, because both Liam and I were there. So let's start. Let's start when we first arrived. I got there before you, Liam. You did. Then you're 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 a trooper. Um, so yeah, I, you know the doors of the Capitol open at seven thirty, and and by the time I was there, maybe quarter after eight, and um, the the line was already stretching around the yep. fourth floor of, uh, of the Capitol. And what's remarkable about this, and this is, I talked to other folks after the hearing, is that usually sort of Capitol veterans, and you sort of, usually on these sort of big hearings, you have, um, you always have people going to show up in kind of in mass, but you typically, people who show up in mass are from one, one side, side. Yep. of a debate. And here you had, you know, pretty much equal numbers of tenants, Tenant or you know groups or, or people organized by kind of tenant advocates and, and community organized community activists and landlords um, and standing it was just right next to each other standing right next to each other and you know and I, I took a I took a I took a picture of you know and I think was you know yeah, sort a of great did, picture uh, that sort of explained the day of like a a, a landlord pointing and a tenant pointing back at them uh, while waiting in line at, you know hour four of this of this uh, conversation and, and it was like it was a pretty remarkable moment to have people who disagree so vociferously about an important topic being like one by one next to each other. And, you know, despite the fact that it was very heated, uh, I think the day went off without sort of incident in, in terms of, you know, there being any uh, uh, kind of uh, sort of physical conflict or any other conflict between landlords and, 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 and the tenancy were there. And that was, again, given how heated this issue is and how important it is to so many people. Um, Pretty remarkable. Yes. And so I had the opportunity to kind of speak to a few people in line um, before the hearing started. And they were real people. I mean, I met somebody who had been displaced from uh, an apartment in the Tenderloin. who sounded like she wasn't on uh, a lease there. um, And they used that to kind of jack up the, the rent. Um, and she had to move, and now she's couch surfing with her daughter. And then on the other side, I met, um, you know, landlords who owned one or two properties who said, you know, this would really, really hurt me. I'm depending on this for my retirement. Um, so it, it was an actual mix of real human beings there from all over the state. So let's just continue through the day. So um, you went into the hearing room. I continued to actually talk with uh, real human beings uh, until the hearing started at 9 a.m. Uh, or around 9 a.m. And then what happened next? 
So uh, sort of how these hearings go, um, you know, after some introductory comments, uh, Bloom introduced the bill and there was sort of testimony from both sides. The Apartment Association, which is sort of the chief opponent of this, um, was kind of leading the opposition. And then you had, uh, you know, some some uh, sort of uh, anti-poverty advocates and tenants' rights uh, advocates talking about um, the benefits of uh, being able to allow for rent control. And then we sort of got to what kind of the, 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 the main event was, which is what was going to happen. I mean, you know, you have, and just to lay out the outcome, the out, sort of the outline of the committee, um, you have a committee dominated by Democrats, right? Um, and uh, they needed four votes to get out. And it became clear very quickly that uh, there were three Democrats who were willing to vote for it. And that was Chu, the, the, um, Chairman, uh, Senator Rob Bonta of Oakland, who is uh, a long in support of this bill, and Senator Mark Stone, um, uh, also from um, uh, sort of the um, more northern California, and he um, uh, made it very clear that he was going to vote for it as well. And so you were down to really two Democrats because the Republicans had said, "No, we're not going to do it." And that was uh, Jim Wood, who we mentioned, and also Senator Ed Chow uh, of of, of Arcadia. Um, and they were um, the ones in question. And Chow, after some debate, uh, made it clear that, that he was going to be abstaining. Um, and so that, that sort of brought it down to Wood um, yeah. right as the public comment uh, uh, was going to begin. And, and that was, uh, yeah. Let, let's talk about Chow for just a, a quick minute here. So Arcadia, for those, especially maybe for our Bay Area listeners, east of L.A., he also represents Monterey Park, um, large Chinese-American population there. There are a decent number of single-family rentals in that area. Um, and I know that partly because of a separate story I'm working on looking at, like, all-cash sales um, across the state. Yeah, so, you know, given those dynamics, it would, you know, um, I don't think it's necessarily a, a surprise to, no. sort of, uh, to, to, to him— coming out and making the comments and, and making the decision that he, that he did. Yes. Um, yeah, I think that's right. And he was obviously a, a very, very key vote for those that wanted repeal. Um, so, yeah, after he kind of said what he said, um, both you and I and those kind of in the know, uh, with, <laughs> without making a sound too elitist, uh, knew it came down to Wood, uh, who had not made his position clear. And then the public comment period happened. Um, and roughly how long did the public comment period? It, it was it was two hours. I timed it. Um, oh, and, good. And, to, and to be to tell you, like, again, like, you know, if you're used to going down to city council meetings, you're listening to them. And and, and if you are, you know, um, congrats. Uh, but but usually <laughs> at those local government meetings, you get, you know, three minutes to make your comment. And, and so a two hour public comment period might not seem like a lot. In this case, people were generally restricted just to saying their name, where they were from, and their position. And so two hours of public comment is literally cycling, cycling through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And that's what it was. Um, and, you know, and it was a lot of emotion. I mean, again, we, you know, at one point uh, there was literally banging on the side of the committee room yeah. uh, at, at some comments. And, you know, they're sort of creating this low rumble in the committee room. Uh, other reporters who were in the Capitol for other hearings said that they yep. could barely hear the other hearings going on yep. because of the chanting in the hallway about 
uh, about Costa Hawkins and about about this bill. Um, and so this was, you know, a long, lengthy and pretty interesting, pretty interesting public comment process. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I got multiple texts from both like staffers and from other reporters being like, what is happening? Uh, the, the public comment period was so long that I was able to leave, eat some oatmeal and then come back and pretty much not miss. You're anything. you're really you're really um, I, I mean, want to give people a, a picture of the day. Your reporter bona fides uh, for for leaving. Um, it's just <laughs> you're. I don't know, man. I mean, we might have to take away your reporter card. I come back <laughs> right at the end of public comment, um, and uh, what happens next, Liam? So uh, you give me a dirty look. I give you a dirty look for leaving um, because that's not what reporters do. Uh. And uh, and. and uh, then we hear from the committee members about you know what what, what they're going to do and and after Stone makes it a, 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 you know sort of expressly clear that he's voting in favor uh, again we turn to Wood and Wood uh, pretty quickly says nah nah you know um, he says I'm worried about um, housing supply and I'm worried that any restrictions on mm-hmm. on uh, on building may make it harder to um, to to sort of deal with um, the housing shortage that we have in the state he references. The fact that there needs to be rebuilding in his community um, after the the fires that we had the end of last year uh, in the North Bay, um, and says no. And um, I don't think uh, it sort of hit people in the room immediately what that meant uh, once he said no. Um, but once the vote actually came down a few yeah. minutes later, uh, there was a very strong reaction. And there was a little, there was a smattering of applause once the ruling, uh, once the vote actually happened, once the repeal died. Um, and then after that, that was quickly overwhelmed by chants from tenant activists. Yeah, and they um, sort of tried to take over the room. Um, yeah. A lot of chanting. I'd say it was about 20 minutes where they sort of sat there and 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 chanted and uh, tried to make it clear that this was not something that they, you know, um, were happy with. I want to talk about Woods' uh, abstention um, for for now. Is this another example of a North Bay legislator th- gumming up the gears of uh, legislation that is being heavily pushed by San Francisco legislators and other kind of urban Bay Area legislators? I mean, I think you can make that argument. But I also think, like, at the end of the day, this, this bill was not moving. Like, even if it got yeah. out of even if it got out of the got out of the committee which it very well could have done, yep. uh, could have been. Like, it wasn't going to go anywhere on the floor of the assembly, and then you have to go through the assembly, like, you know, and, you know, let alone the governor. And so this this bill was not moving. It wasn't going anywhere. And yep. so, you know, if it died, I don't know if it's better for landlord groups or tenant groups to have it die as it did last week, uh, but it was going to die. Um, and so, yep. so you know, um, I don't think you, you can certainly, if you want, um, if you're on the side of wanting to expand rent control, blame Wood and Chow um, for it ending last week. Uh, but you can't really blame them in terms of the overall issue because it wasn't going to go. It wasn't going to move. Yep. And so um, and I think even, and I, 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 you know, even activist groups would 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 concede that. Yes. And so um, as a result, I don't you know, to your question, again, on the one hand, you can. But in, overall, in the reality is, I think is I think that's not the case. How much should other moderate Democrats in the assembly and specifically Speaker Rendon, who's not a moderate, but is de facto in charge of uh, a lot of what gets through the assembly, obviously, 
how much should they be thankful that this bill didn't make it to the floor? Well, I mean, for those who didn't want to take a vote on this, they should be really thankful. Um, and they should they, they should go to Ed Chow and Jim Wood and, you know, hand them give them some flowers. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because this this allows a number of folks who doesn't don't want to take this vote to not have this vote on their on their record. You yeah. know, um, and so they should be very thankful for to those to those to those two guys, because they're, they're not going to have to take a position on this. I don't think until the ballot measure becomes more real. Yeah. And, you know, and that buys you time to think about more about what you want to say. Yep. Um, so that's some of the politics behind why the measure um, did not get out of the hearing. And yes, I had heard the same things as Liam, that this was going to be a very, very difficult fight um, in the legislature, even if it got out of committee. Um, so let's talk about some of the issues that both Wood and Chow and the Republicans on the committee raised um, but specifically Wood and Chow, which was, as you mentioned, this was a one-line bill that says, we're doing away with Costa-Hawkins. That's it. There, there is no other language that would try to modify Costa-Hawkins in a different way, that would try to appease some of the concerns of landlords and maybe some local jurisdictions about this. Um, what, what do you make of that? argument that this was in essence too too simple a a repeal so uh again i'm gonna give one hand and other hand this issue um i think how I dare think, you i know i think wood wood who brought this point i think most most precisely said look like when we have these kinds of kind of big votes or big policy issues there's some give and take and so the yep. before committee hearing or a commitment to make to make changes to the bill during the committee hearing. You didn't have that here. Um, and that's not the way that the legislature typically works on these kinds of issues. And he's right. Um, and, you know, um, and I think that speaks to, more than anything else, neither side, neither the landlord um, sort of activists or the apartment association or the tenant activists being willing to budge on what they feel about this. Um, and, you know, because especially because I think that's true, especially because the two people who are kind of principally behind this, uh, Bloom, lawmakers principally behind this, Bloom and Chu, are known as guys who are willing to make deals and are willing to compromise and not really ideologues. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that if there was something that could have moved the ball forward in either direction on this, I think those, those legislators would have been open to it. And it didn't happen. And so I think that, again, speaks to how polarizing uh, this issue is uh, among the the interest groups that are that are involved. Let's talk about that in the context of this looming ballot initiative, which you mentioned earlier. I mean, part of the point of the ballot initiative, maybe not the primary point, but certainly a, a welcome side effect of it was it was supposed to put pressure on legislators to do something, right? Um, does that mean that that was completely overhyped and also what does that mean from the california apartment association's perspective so i think um i think though uh those who um uh want this law to change um can rightfully argue given w what 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 happened um that the only way this law will change in the near future is through the ballot um, mm -hmm. especially to the extent that they want it to, to, to change or to have a big kind of big change. 
And so because you saw what happened last week and then you and then, you know, what the, the, the lack of support within the legislature to do something like this. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that in some ways um, what happened last week in many ways proves the point that the only way we're going to be able to do this is th- over the ballot. And so, you know, well, if you want to ha- if you want to have some negotiation, um, there was a time for that. And that that didn't that didn't that didn't uh, happen, except I think in one sort of key area. And this is really interesting to kind of get this on on the record, because we haven't at least I haven't heard this in public before. Um, and that was when the Apartment Association representative there uh, said that that she was open to the idea of changing the date. Um, yeah. and we talked about this at the beginning of the of the podcast. Remember that, you know, you can't have rent control on buildings after 1995. She signaled that she was willing to talk about that. And that was, again, the first time that I had heard that. Um, and if the hearing did anything with respect to sort of subsequently changing the discussion in some way um, or subsequently adding something new, in my view, that yep. was it. Yep. Uh, I, I guess what I'm asking too, though, is so l- let's let's say we're the California Apartment Association. If if we are unwilling to meaning meaningfully negotiate on this bill, that must mean we're pretty confident of our chances in November. Correct. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, they've because I think because they've been successful over the past now more than two decades yep. at at maintaining this sort of Costa Hawkins regime. Yeah. Um, and clearly, uh, by not only busing uh, a bunch of landlords from all over, you know, <laughs> the Bay Area to this hearing, but also giving them matching yellow T-shirts. Um, yep. You know, they're willing with well, a all were right. They're willing to spend money uh, and they're going <laughs> to. Um, and and do you we're going to see. Do you think the, how, how big of a fraction of CA's budget do you think the yellow T-shirts Comprise. I mean, they were well designed. I'll say it, that they kind of reminded me of the city jerseys from the Golden State Warriors. Wow, I, you're really giving them a lot of credit. Well, uh, I was like, oh, those are pretty nice. I've seen a lot of uh, message advocacy t-shirts. t-shirts. Yeah, yeah, I was like, oh, they, yeah. you know, these t-shirts are pretty decent. <laughs> so, so I think the t-shirt budget is just one small line item yes. in, what the, in what the what the maintain Costa Hawkins budget is uh, for the coming year, and I would not be shocked if that were in the tens of millions of dollars. Uh, and for those that are wondering, okay, what what actually could have been compromised? Right, they could have done stuff around the date. Right, right. they could have done stuff maybe around means testing, which w- seems very very practically difficult to execute but you know it's possible Um, they could have done stuff around single family homes so there is a realm of possibility there um but but you know it did not happen um so okay uh any other big takeaways from um the rent control super bowl we saw on thursday i think let's let's hear what david chu has to say Sounds good. To Assembly Member Chu. So we're here with Assemblyman David Chu, a Democrat from San Francisco, who's also the head of the Assembly Housing Committee. And it turns out there was a pretty raucous uh, Housing Committee meeting last week um, on one particular issue, rent control. And so uh, thanks, Assemblyman, for taking the time to chat with us about it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on uh, the podcast with you guys. In the flesh. In the In flesh. The flesh. Look at this. <laughs> the Abbott and Costello of housing. 
But yeah, we had yeah. a we had a uh, we had a, a a lively and spicy hearing this past week. In fact, uh, a number of people uh, observed it felt like being back at San Francisco City Hall. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the first question for you. Um, This bill was introduced uh, last year. So why wasn't there a hearing until now? Well, um, we had a lot of work to do last year. Uh, as, as, as you guys both covered, uh, there was an awful lot of uh, housing policy work and, and legislation to, to address last year. And, uh, uh, and uh, there was a lot of focus on, on making sure that we delivered on housing funding and streamlining and accountability. Um, and um, both sides of the rent control debate uh, had wanted to have more time to, to really have a chance to, to talk to the California public about uh, the future rent control. And, and so we deferred what would have been a debate last year to uh, the debate we had this week. Yeah, but, um, you know, as it was sort of said during the hearing, it's not like any, even if they were talking to people, not like anything changed over that year, right? The bill didn't change. Nothing, nothing happened. That is absolutely a fair point. Uh, it, it was uh, a lot of education, I think, probably on both sides within a lot of communities throughout California. And um, uh, we had the outcome of last week, which uh, which obviously didn't go the way that uh, a number of us would have wanted. But uh, the conversation will certainly continue. So there were folks who, who took over your office to try to get you to schedule a hearing at some tenant groups. What was that like? Had that happened before to you? Or how did, other issues? How did you learn of that? Yeah, you know, I uh, it was it was a little uh, ironic that that had happened, given that I was a co-author of this bill, and uh, as as you know, here in Sacramento, have been leading the fights for for tenants and and for housing. Uh, I think there was some frustration about whether the bill was going to be scheduled, and there was some misunderstanding that somehow I controlled the timing of when something got scheduled. And as you know, in Sacramento, the author of a bill dictates whether a bill is heard or not. And that was Mr. Bloom. I had publicly said, and I also had privately said to my good friend Richard Bloom, that I had hoped that we counter it because I think the public wanted to know uh, really where the legislature stood on it. And I thought it was important to have a public debate. Um, But I was protested with that misunderstanding that somehow it was my call. Um, But that got clarified and and obviously we had the hearing and uh and uh the chips fell as they fell so you're not omnipotent and all-powerful is that what you're if i were omnipotent and all-powerful uh we would have solved the housing crisis by now (laughs) but you know i am one of 120 measures and uh and uh unfortunately i can't dictate uh when all bills are heard or exactly the votes on all bills as some may may think i can uh, did the hearing kind of play out as you expected it to? I wasn't completely surprised. I mean, we we weren't exactly sure where a couple of our colleagues were until the very end. Uh, and uh, uh, we we've had some new colleagues uh, join us on the committee, and it is a big and new topic. So that was uh, a little bit of suspense. But as far as just the intensity of perspectives and the sheer volume of people who came up and, and all the folks that had what they had to say, it, it, it really wasn't a surprise. And it's been something that uh, I've been hearing really for the better part of not just this year, but for years. Um, there was a particular moment in the hearing that um, kind of struck Liam and, and I, which was when Assemblymember Wood um, asked what the Ellis Act <laughs> was. Um, yeah. When when he said that, both Liam and I looked at each other, and then you could 
could also hear some audible reaction, I think, from probably some of the Bay Area um, uh, members in attendance. Um, what was going through your head when you heard that? What was going on through my head was uh, poor Jim Wood was at his first housing committee meeting. Uh, he's obviously new to housing. Uh, he's been the chair of our health care committee of our health committee, but uh, but 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 not someone who uh, has had the time yet to become deeply versed on housing policy. I have since then had a chance to chat with them about the significance of the Ellis Act and how important it is uh, to uh, so many folks. Uh, and frankly, that's another bill that I would love to see reformed or repealed. Um, but uh, but unfortunately, Jim wasn't didn't know that when it was brought up in the context of the Costa Hawkins discussion. Mm. So, do you, I mean, this is uh, you know, it was a narrow. Um, uh, vote for not getting out of the out of the committee, but realistically, uh, even that, if that had happened, what was what would the bill's fate have been on the on the floor in the assembly? I don't think anyone who follows housing politics in Sacramento uh, had. Uh, uh, I, I think everyone who watches uh, tenant bills and housing bills know that these type of bills are are very difficult to get through our state capital. Uh, a few years ago, we had an Ellis Act reform bill, which, like this Costa-Hawkins bill, did not get out of the first policy committee. That was Senator Leno's bill. And uh, these are very difficult bills to move. The, the, the tenants' movement uh, is one that I would describe as still fairly nascent here in, in Sacramento. But what I will say is, uh, and, and, and I've been told this by, by other observers, that this was really the first time that we've seen this level of intensity brought to the Capitol around tenants' bills. And I think it is, uh, again, the beginning of a conversation and certainly not the end. So why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? I think um, I, I think it's a number of things. Uh, I think that the tenants community is not as uh, organized here in Sacramento, or not necessarily as organized in everyone's district. I happen to represent uh, a city of San Francisco, which is uh, which is two-thirds tenants and has a, a very well-organized uh, set of, of, of tenant activists and tenant leadership that is sophisticated in how to move important things through the city hall process in San Francisco. Um, I can't say from what I've seen around the state that that is true around California. That may be true in a couple of cities like uh, some of our uh, Northern California cities like Oakland or, or San Francisco or L.A., uh, but that's certainly not true around the state of California, and I think mm-hmm. it's reflected in, uh, in, in, in uh, many bills that have died uh, in, in Sacramento. Uh, I have authored the last few major tenant bills that have gotten through successfully and signed by the governor, and they've all been hard fights. Uh, last year, I had uh, a tenant bill to address unlawful detainers, the idea that if you are facing an eviction law, Lawsuit. It used to be that your name would get placed on a essentially a corporate blacklist so that future landlords would know if you had been sued in an eviction court if you didn't win your case within 60 days. And it didn't make sense. Uh, so in other words, like you could get filed with an eviction lawsuit and you could win that lawsuit, but your name would still get put on this corporate blacklist. And when we tried to change that, it was a dogfight in every committee, in every floor vote. We got it through the legislature with the bare number of votes, 41 votes that we needed an exact 41 votes in the in the assembly. Mm-hmm. We got 21 votes in the Senate, which is exactly what we needed. Governor's signature. Um, these are really hard fights. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious. Before the uh, Costa Hawkins hearing, yeah. what what were the questions that 
you um, got from uh, Wood and Chow? Like, what, what were their questions about the bill? You know, they articulated uh, privately some of the concerns that they discussed publicly. Um, I think for both of them, uh, there uh, there seems to be, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I think there, there seems to be some openness to uh, potentially tweaking or amending some aspects of Costa Hawkins, but they were uh, they were were not up for a full on repeal. Um, I think from from their perspective, they they want to make sure that uh, we're not shutting down incentives to build or to rehabilitate homes, and uh, and and certainly I think some of the issues around the possibility of vacancy decontrol uh, stressed both of them. Um, and and they were looking to find a middle ground, but unfortunately, as uh, I think I articulated, and both Richard Richard Bloom also said, um, neither side, at least at this point, have been um, particularly interested in in trying to have a dialogue to see if there's uh, a common ground on this issue. Neither side. I, I mean, does that include yourself? Uh, I, what I would say is, as policymakers, we're trying to figure out how we how we get folks to an agreement, and and by by neither side, I mean the tenant advocates nor the folks representing the real estate interests. And uh, you know, I do support the repeal of Costa Hawkins. Um, and but if it had turned out that there was some interest in a discussion in the middle, I would have been willing to engage in that discussion. But we just didn't see that. And uh, when faced with an or down vote. Uh, there were three of us that chose to say we should support a repeal. Uh, my two Republican colleagues decided to vote against it, and uh, Jim Wood and, and, and Ed Chow uh, abstained from the vote, uh, which I think was a, a real public indication that uh, they were not really with either side, but were hoping for something different. It, go ahead. So so what does the ideal rent control exactly. policy look like from your perspective? Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a multi-billion dollar question. You know, for me, rent control has not been perfect at some levels. There's been a lot of complaints about uh, folks who make a hundred thousand dollars a year who get to live in their place for for many many years, uh, which then displaces other folks from being able to live in rent control. But there hasn't been a, uh, there hasn't been a good solution in how to address that. There's been some thought that somehow we should means test it, right. right? Say that you can only get rent control if you make below a certain income. The problem with that system is that landlords would be incented to only rent to people who uh, who who wouldn't take advantage of that because mm-hmm. better, you know, the, let's use the example in San Francisco, better to rent to a uh, tech or innovation worker making over $100,000 a year and not have them, uh, better to rent to them than to rent to someone who would be paying less. And sure. so it creates this weird disincentive in sure. that in that area. For me, what is important about rent control is it's one of the few tools that has protected some level of economic diversity in very expensive cities like like San Francisco. And um, and I often say that while rent control is imperfect, it's the best system we have right now. And I just haven't heard something that is a better alternative um, to that. And, and because of that, I think that giving cities the ability to tweak rent control rules uh, as they see fit that 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 makes sense for their city is something that 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 uh, I support. So if you could wave a magic wand or were magically appointed monarch of San Francisco, what what would the 
rent control regime that you think makes the most sense look like? Well, I think um, I think it's I mean a rent control regime that again protects the economic diversity, particularly of middle class and uh, and and working families uh, who are challenged from an income standpoint of being able to stay in the city. That they have an ability to uh, to to pay rent and and not be forced out. So. Um, uh, you know, at the end of the day, rent control laws, when they were crafted in the 1970s and 1980s, they actually looked different depending on what city you were in. So, uh, so there were some cities that adopted certain types of rent control, um, different from others. And what we've seen is is different cities, you know, laid out different rules, and they have seemed to have worked. Um, there was a lot of discussion in the last couple of weeks leading up to the Costa-Hawkins debate that somehow rent control cities would shut down incentives for construction. And what we found and the studies that we've seen shows the opposite, that it's actually the rent control cities themselves, because they are such expensive cities with such high demand, uh, that construction has happened and boomed in those cities much more than they have in other cities. And then cities close by to, say, San Francisco or San Jose or Oakland uh, that don't have rent control have seen zero construction. And so it's it's uh, it's a, a set of anomalies that we're still trying to tease through. So the debate now shifts to potential ballot measure mm-hmm. uh, for November. Do you support that measure? So, you know, obviously I have supported the repeal of Costa-Hawkins, right. so we'll see if uh, the signatures get collected uh, and where the conversation uh, goes. But at the end of the day, uh, I'm going to support what I think is going to ensure that uh, we don't have thousands of tenants who are being evicted or, or millions of Californians who are at risk of being evicted, and I have supported the repeal of Costa-Hawkins. So yes on the measure. Uh, yeah. Likely yes. But I, 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 I look forward to having a conversation with uh, uh, the ballot proponents about how they're going to to move forward with the campaign and uh, and and what we are going to be doing to make sure that the tenants movement continues to build through this discussion so, so one of the major proponents uh, of the ballot measure is uh, Michael Weinstein down in LA friend of the podcast friend of the podcast has been on before um, he is pretty controversial uh, up and down the state for a variety of reasons particular in housing politics and otherwise what do you think of him? Michael uh, has strong perspectives on issues. Uh, I have agreed with him on some. I have disagreed with him on others. Um, from a factual standpoint, his track record of winning ballot measures, uh, I think he's at this moment 0 for 3. Um, and so I hope and I have encouraged the ballot proponents to think hard about what's it going to take to win a ballot measure um, from you know he uh, he helped to uh, to finance the the measure around uh, uh, condoms in in uh, in porn movies uh, he moved forward uh, a measure that I supported strongly which would have uh, created some more standards to hopefully reduce prices of pharmaceutical drugs uh, he also had a measure in Los Angeles uh, which was really viewed as a moratorium on housing development and um, and all those measures, whether I'd supported him or didn't, they all failed. And so my question to him and his team is, what is going to be different about this? Uh, you know, I certainly hope that if the measure moves forward, uh, there will be different things that move forward that that will be successful. But uh, you know, and I and I hope we'll see that. Um, if let's assume this initiative actually does pass, if San Francisco um, re instituted vacancy decontrol, would you support that? 
I think so. For me, what I have found um, most uh, important about the Costa Hawkins repeal conversation is the the date that we had actually fixed um, construction on. And, and let me explain that for a second. So there was an element of Costa Hawkins that said that um, any new construction after the date at which a local jurisdiction had implemented rent control would not fall under rent control. So what that meant in San Francisco is any building after 1979 uh, would not be subject to rent control. In most cities around the state, the 15 cities that have adopted rent control, that basically means that we've frozen rent control to 1970s or 1980 dates. Mm -hmm. From my perspective, what that means is when my two-year-old son becomes an adult, um, we will effectively not see rent control in San Francisco and in most cities in, in California, which means that this tool to protect the economic diversity of our cities will go away, and I have a problem with that. So uh, so I think that is something we should change. With regard to vacancy decontrol, I do think we have to be careful in in looking at every city and, and, and seeing what that will, what kind of incentives or disincentives that will create. Um, are there are many, there, many there, 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 were, there were some cities that had implemented that in the 1970s, but my recollection is the majority of cities that had rent control in the 1970s and 1980s chose not to move forward with vacancy decontrol. And for good reason, because they made a decision that in their cities it wouldn't work. Um, I think the for me, the, the value of repealing Costa Hawkins would be to allow cities to have that discussion of whether it worked. And I think it'd be important if we were to consider that in a city like San Francisco is to, um, is to, to take a deep dive on whether these incentives would work. Um, and it might turn out at a time when we're seeing just massive, really hyper real estate inflation and prices, uh, that there is some, uh, there is some reason in, in some years to, to say that we need more significant controls on our prices. I think that's entirely appropriate, but it would really, it really depends on the time, the city and the place. And again, you know, Repealing Costa Hawkins is about saying, uh, let's let cities decide as opposed to a one-size-fits-all by government. So uh, let's pivot a bit to sure. um, some other, uh, other I'll things. I'll stop asking the same question right. seven different ways. Even <laughs> 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 different the, variations. The, of, the, yeah, the last right. answer was the best answer. Yeah, exactly. good, right? That, yeah, we got you. Yeah. We wore you down a little bit, yes. so great, yes. Um, so so um, other, other housing issues this year, you know, we've – Obviously, you guys did, did 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 a pretty good amount politically um, last year in the in the in, in the housing conversation, including authorizing you know new money uh, that would go towards um, low income development. Doesn't I'm not hearing anyone making similar proposals this year on the on the money side, despite despite the continued and substantial need. Is that not happening? Is I would no, say I would yeah. say on that. Stay tuned. Yeah. Uh, you know, certainly the funding. Uh, that we worked on last year. It was a good down payment on what we need to do, but right. it by no means is the end of the conversation. Right. And uh, Donald Trump and his Republican allies, by passing the most recent tax uh, bill, um, gashed yet another hole in our state's finances when it came to housing. It's been estimated a half a billion dollars a year we're going to lose because of the changing in corporate tax rates. And uh, I am, and I know others are, looking into a number of other possibilities of what we need to do to bring back some of that funding. Uh, the way I would put it is last year we might have took taken one, two steps forward, mm -hmm. but Donald Trump literally, with the passage of the tax bill, brought us one step back. And so I think 
think there are more things that we need to look into, whether, for example, we try to re- bring back redevelopment at some point or try to reverse some of the uh, the worst aspects of the tax bill. Um, I think the, the conversation of how we invest in affordable housing is absolutely not done. Oh, sure. But this year, though, we're not talking about bringing back redevelopment. Uh, there yeah. may be conversations about it. Stay tuned. Oh, uh, I will hold, hold, hold you to that. Uh, I'm just saying, but, we were having the conversations, and and uh, and 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 we'll we'll see where that goes in the next yeah. couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, I don't think the governor's going to like the idea. Of the governor back. has <laughs> not. Yeah. You know, the governor yeah. has not been supportive of it. But I don't think the governor, um, in his decision to eliminate redevelopment, he was not intending to gut. Uh, the basic financing of affordable housing in the state of California. So there are many of us in the legislature who have an interest in seeing what we can do to bring it back. We also know that uh, this year in the gubernatorial race, the major Democratic candidates are, um, are, 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 are having a very important and significant conversation about housing. Uh, and all of the major candidates have said that they would try to bring back redevelopment in some form. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good sign for the future. So whether we start the conversation this year or start it with the election of a new governor next year, suffice it to say, this funding conversation is not done. Speaking of um, the gubernatorial race, um, who's got the best housing plan? And do you think uh, <laughs> Newsom's plan is realistic? What I appreciate about um, about Antonio Vigorosa, John Chung, and Gavin Newsom, and, and I have endorsed uh, Mr. Newsom, by the way, um, is all three of them are thinking very aggressively and, and have a significant vision about where they want to go when it comes to housing. Um, and to some degree, they've all been trying to outdo each other as far as who will have the biggest number of, of setting a target <laughs> for housing goals, which I think is a good thing. I think yeah, that's good right. for California because... Even though the numbers that uh, that Gavin has put out, which I know are significant, I think the highest of the bunch, um, three. I'm trying to remember three and a half, and a half million, million over the next twenty twenty five. In the next, yeah, uh, in the next couple of years, is yeah. a lot of housing. Yeah. You got. You have to set bold, audacious goals if you're going to move a state that has been stagnant in building housing. And right. so I applaud him. I applaud John Chung. I applaud Antonio. I applaud all the candidates for really uh, pushing each other to be aggressive on housing. So, uh, so I hope that we can achieve the goals. Uh, and uh, and I, I hope to be a part of that conversation in the coming years. Uh, and, and again, it's a good thing for voters to know that whichever of the Democratic candidates get elected, uh, someone is going to come in and, and really grab the reins and try to move housing farther than we've taken it even this past year. Yeah. But to, but to Matt's point, I mean, Newsom's plan calls for roughly three to four times more housing production annually than we do now for the next you know, eight, nine years. I think yeah. those are the levels that we need to be thinking about. And while at one level it sounds shocking, yeah. it, it it just starts to take us to where we need to go. So I I, I applaud him for, for laying down those markers. I, how do you do that? You know, uh, how, I mean, you know how hard it is, right? I mean, absolutely. You, you know, and you took on, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, but yep. you, you tried to do a, a, a reform of the mortgage interest deduction last year to, yep. to, to bring some money, and that went nowhere. Um, yeah. and, Actually, and, ironically, yeah. Donald Trump... Uh, eliminated the mortgage yep. interest deduction and, and did exactly what I proposed. The yep. only problem is I proposed eliminating a mortgage interest deduction for vacation homeowners and right. using that money, those savings, to build affordable housing. Yeah. Donald Trump decided to take that money and give it to, give it to his billionaire friends and his oil company friends and others. So, uh, a different kind of thing. But, but his got passed. But his got passed <laughs> by Republicans. Uh, yes, exactly. Exactly. So, so but, what, but what I, is... But I, but I think, it, you know, it's, it's important for policy 
policymakers to be to be bold, and 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 this is why I proposed uh, uh, trying to trying to end the mortgage interest deduction here in California for vacation homeowners, and why we set these big goals. And uh, and the democratic process typically whittles our proposals down, which is right. what happened, right. uh, which is what happened uh, to a number of the proposals that we had in the legislature. But if you don't set big goals, you don't get anywhere. But do you think that lesson, so what lessons do you take from that in terms of trying to find ways to raise money and how then how hard it's going to be to try to find other ways to raise well, money? Well, what I would say about that is the discussion, the housing discussion, uh, with the greatest respect to, to Governor Brown, has has really been driven so far by the legislature, right? We were pushing the discussion this past year. We agree year, with that, yeah. And I am very grateful to Governor Brown for working with the legislature and prioritizing this and getting done what we did last year, um, but knowing that uh, it took us decades to, uh, to 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 create the crisis we're in, it's going to take us years to get out. Um, but to have a governor as a partner with the legislature, willing to 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 try to hit some home runs here, um, is going to be really important. And I think setting really large goals forces all of us, not just policymakers, but all the stakeholders around. Sacramento and around the state capitol to think hard about what new and big things we can do. So I often, people ask me, why is housing politics so hard? And and what I typically explain is we know there are major things that need to happen, um, but and every stakeholder has their pet idea of what they want to have happen, but also opposes things that other stakeholders want. And right. so, for example, um, cities and localities will scream and say, we need billions of dollars more to build housing. And I will agree with that. Um, and oftentimes those funding sources will come from, say, the real estate community or the developer community who will fight that tooth and nail. And those communities will say, well, we need uh, cities to streamline and uh, we need to hold cities more accountable. And the cities will fight that tooth and nail. And uh, and then you have stalemate. Right. And what I would say to all of them is, well, we should have both. Let's try to let's 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 significantly uh, increase the amount of funding we have by billions of dollars, and let's think of what we need to do to streamline at the same time, so we have an all of the above set of solutions. And I think this year we had a major set of breakthroughs on those issues, but but we can't and need to do better. Uh, when you have over half of all renters in the state of California who are considering leaving their neighborhoods, their communities because of the cost of housing, when you have 40% of millennials who are living in their homes because they can't afford housing, uh, when you have a state- That with, was my story. You just cited my story. Yeah. I'm just letting you know. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, I, think I, I think I read yeah. that. Uh, you know, when you have, when you have a, a state that has the- uh, the we're the, you know we're the sixth largest economy in the country and we have the highest poverty rate in the nation including housing costs something right. is fundamentally broken and um, and again unless you set audacious goals and you tell everyone we got to think out of the box and everyone's going to have to give up some of their sacred cows in order to achieve and uh, uh, achieve what we all want um, that's what I hope the next governor will be a partner with us in helping to do so uh, sixth largest economy in in the world. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so speaking of kind of bigger ideas, um, what do you think of Senator Weiner's bill on upzoning around transit? Uh, 
I think we, we, we all of us as policymakers have talked about the need for transit-oriented development. Right. Uh, and in fact, I may have a bill in this area as well. I think this mm. year we're going to have a bit of a discussion around what does it mean to have good transit-oriented development. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't had a chance to read the particulars, but the idea of 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 permitting uh, more density around transit is one that makes sense uh, from a housing standpoint, from a transportation standpoint, from a uh, smart growth transpoint, uh, trans, uh, point of perspective from a environmental perspective. So, so the principle is one I certainly support. Okay. Um, so you thought about running for mayor of San Francisco, and you're not. I, uh, yeah, I'm really grateful that uh, thousands of San Franciscans over the course of a couple of weeks had reached out and, and encouraged me to think about doing it. There were a couple of reasons why I didn't. I have uh, a two-year-old at home uh, who, uh, while I love the kid, he's often more difficult to manage than 119 legislative colleagues in Sacramento. <laughs> uh, so, so you know, I, 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 I'm really enjoying my time as a, as a new dad, and uh, this time is, is special, and, uh, and the timing just didn't feel right. And I have unfinished business that I want to get done in in Sacramento. Uh, this past year was uh, was a very good year as far as housing and transportation and delivering on on civil rights for for immigrants and and fighting the the resistance fight against Donald Trump. Um, but our work isn't done. And in California, we're really the the center of the resistance uh, and leading that effort uh, against Washington D.C. and what Donald Trump is about. And I wasn't ready to to leave that. But that being said, uh, I love my city and. Uh, and we'll see what happens in the future. Um, tell us your worst roommate story. My worst roommate story. <laughs> I've had great roommates. I've actually had I've had, uh, I've had many roommates uh, over the course of my life, uh, including uh, two former elected officials. No, I'm sorry, two current elected officials, uh, two former roommates who who are currently elected officials, and uh, who are, who are? Uh, Supervisor Jane Kim. On the oh. San Francisco Board of Supervisors, I did not know that, and yeah. uh, and Mayor Sam Licardo uh, huh. of okay. the city of San Jose, uh, and uh, you know my my living situation for many years I think reflects the living situation of twenty thirty somethings in expensive cities like San Francisco. We we uh, we we cram a bunch of folks into small spaces and and uh, and and have a good time, and uh, and that was certainly you know my experience uh, as a tenant. Uh, through uh, most of my life until I was 46. Huh. So the three of you all live together? Or uh, different, different, different times. Different oh, okay. Because I was going to ask like who who won the political, like who aligned with who in the like, <laughs> or who was going to buy the milk and stuff like that. You know. <laughs> yeah. Somehow I was always I always got the responsibility of buying the toilet paper, <laughs> <laughs> whatever that means. Um, <laughs> good to know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay. All right. Sullivan, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Mm -hmm. David. Thank you, guys.